You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. I don't normally say something like this, but the lady who led the prayer time sure was good looking. (laughs) That's my wife. Uh, In case... Especially those online did not hear that she said, oh, well, I guess I'd give this to my husband. Well, several years ago, my Australian wife and I were in uh, the land of her birth and childhood in Australia. And we took advantage of the opportunity to go across uh, the ocean, a short part, a small part of the ocean, and get to New Zealand. And we were in search of Gandalf, did not find him, but we did see some beautiful, beautiful scenery on the South Island of New Zealand. We were there in June, which, as you know, if you think about it, is the, is the winter uh, in the Southern Hemisphere. So we were going to Queenstown. We didn't know when we decided to go that there was going to be a winter festival, but it was great. We were out, enjoy. it was so cold, well, it was around freezing, but you know, you can imagine in June, if you're there and it's 32 degrees, uh, it's pretty chilly, but it was a nice evening, there were a lot of people out, and all of a sudden it occurred to me, I turned to Alice and I said, we're 30 years older than anybody here. I'm like, no way, I'm 40 years older than anybody out, you know, everybody was just bopping around as were we and then I felt old all of a sudden and we started walking like this but at any rate we were in Queenstown I was so excited about going to church on Sunday morning we asked people in Australia hey we're going to be in Queenstown can you recommend a good church nobody had a recommendation so we attended an evangelical church now let me just say we attended a denomination, uh, a church that was of a certain denomination that is often evangelical. I'm not going to name it anymore, but it happened to be June 21st, which is winter solstice in in the Southern Hemisphere. And um, we had hopes for a gospel message, but discovered very early on that the church leadership did not consider Scripture to be authoritative. The hour that we spent there reminded me far more of a winter pagan festival than it did a church service where we were to hear from God's word and worship the Lord. Such churches do nonetheless employ scripture uh, for their homilies, which are used as a pretext to provide life lessons for the members of the church. The text for that day was the same as our text today, Matthew 17, which tells of Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. So for the introduction, the pastor talked about one of the most famous Kiwis, Sir Edmund Hillary. Anybody know what Sir Edmund Hillary did? He was the first recorded climber along with his Sherpa to reach the summit of Mount Everest. So the point of Matthew 17, the pastor said, was that when you get to the top of the mountain, you need to stop and enjoy the view. As 
Sir Edmund had lamented he did not do when he got there. He said, I should have just enjoyed the view, but I was so busy about the task. And I wanted to stand up and say, no, that's not the point of the Mount of Trials. The point is Jesus is God. Listen to him. Although it would have been more appropriate to say, the point, good sir, is that Jesus is God. But I did neither. We had had someone stand up in one of our services just not long before that and have a word or two. And so I restrained myself. It was a good reminder, though, that as we think about this topic of missions, there is as much work to do with the religious as there is with the non-religious. And I was thinking, too, what a perfect day to think about Jenny Tate and Joy Vonk, who both told people about Jesus everywhere they were right here before they went to serve him in other places. Of course, Jenny was going home to serve the Lord in Australia. My guess is that you will have little trouble discerning the meaning of Jesus' transfiguration as the text is read. But in preparation for reading Matthew 17, I want to remind you where we are in this series because I know you're thinking, when are we going to get to missions? Believe me, full, full bore next week. But all of this is sort of preparation when we get to, to talk about the topic of mission. So we're going to think about where we've come from and where uh, we're going with, by addressing one interpretive issue about the text today. We began three weeks ago in Matthew 16, 13, which told about Jesus' great confession or Peter's great confession of Jesus as Messiah. Then we saw Jesus begin to tell his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem, be mistreated, that he was going to die and be raised from the dead on the third day. Peter expressed alarm at Jesus' prophecy and sought to dissuade him from his course. But Jesus rebuked Peter sharply for tempting him to receive the reign of the kingdom here on earth without the suffering of the cross, which was, after all, the reason that the Father had sent the Son to the earth. Then Jesus told the disciples that all who would be disciples must deny themselves, take up crosses, and follow him. So it's wrong to say, well, okay, I know you're a Christian, but are you a disciple? If you are a Christian, you are a disciple. And here is what is required of disciples. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. And then in Matthew 16, 28, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So now we're going to talk about the kingdom. There's a whole lot about the kingdom in the Gospels, not a lot in the epistles. Hebrews 12 talks about the kingdom, a kingdom that we receive. But not a whole lot in the epistles. So this is the interpretive issue. Jesus declares that the kingdom that you will behold or that some of you will get a taste of is my kingdom. Most of the time in Matthew, we read about the kingdom of heaven, while Mark and Luke speak of the kingdom of God. So which is it? You know the answer. Yes. 
The terms are used interchangeably. And while there may be a skosh of nuance. Took me a long time to figure out how to spell skosh. You know, I thought I had a different. But while there's a just a, a smidge of nuance. They usually mean the same thing. A good example of this interchangeableness is found in Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So you see, he's talking about the exact same thing. Same kingdom, whether it be his kingdom, God's kingdom, or the kingdom of heaven. There are more questions about the kingdom that will be addressed today and next Sunday as we continue this series. But although we do not, and although we do not preach quite the same um, as John the Baptist and Jesus did early in their ministry when they said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Nonetheless, we are proclaiming the nearness and necessity of God's kingdom as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the four corners of the world. We will begin our time in the word by reading Matthew chapter 17 verses 1 to 8. Although our focus today begins in 1628, as we've already read, and it goes all the way through 23, but those last verses from 9 to 23, not going to take time to read. I'll mention them briefly, but they're there for your further study. So it's our custom to stand as the scripture is read. So if you please would stand, I will be reading from the English Standard Version. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord... It is good that we are here. Good thing that we are here. Don't you know we can do something about this? If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud, the Shekinah glory of God we think of, overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. Just to give you a little hint, the church we went to in New Zealand would be very comfortable with that language. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And by the way, you were expecting Roy Lytle this morning when they had forecasts of snow, when it was going to be so cold, which is really bad for Margaret. They're a little advanced in age. Um, Ted McKinney suggested wisely that we 
postpone that. So Roy and Margaret will be coming uh, a, a little bit later. And it'll be a blessing whenever they are here. Uh, I've begun a practice this year that has been 40 years in the making. Now look, I, I just want to say this. I feel awkward at times when I say, well, here's what I do. But I'm saying these things for you to think about, especially younger ones. Just think about this as an example. Maybe this is something that would benefit you. It benefited me because 40 years ago, I heard someone saying that you ought to never get too far from the Gospels. Never get too far from Jesus. So... In addition to reading in the Psalms, which I've just started doing the last few years, every day, or most days anyway, I'm reading one chapter of the four Gospels every day. And I understand I have more time to do that than a lot of you are able to do. So just hang on to this if it doesn't work right now. I've mentioned several times over the last two to three years, that, and, and really for quite a while, that you can't fully understand the teachings of Jesus Unless you read the epistles. The, the, the apostles who wrote the epistles. Got that? Try not to say it too fast. They explain what Jesus was saying. For instance, when we witness to someone. You ever been tempted to say. If they were to say. How can a person be? How can I be saved? Sell everything that you have. Go sell your home. Give it all to the poor. And follow Jesus. No, we don't say that. Jesus was dealing with his particular idol, the rich man's particular idol. And he knew the hearts of all men. And so consequently, we, sometimes we need help understanding what and why Jesus was saying the things that he did. So the, the, the epistles help us with that. The opposite is true too though. Never get too far from the Gospels, you see the, when you see the heart of Jesus, you're seeing the heart of God. Because Jesus was and is God. So we see his heart for people. We see the way that he deals with circumstances and situations. And we learn a great deal from that. So I tell you all of this to encourage you to hang on to lessons that you learn that you know deep down are important. Even if it takes you 40 years to apply them. In reading Mark and Luke so far this month, and in preparation for this message, I'm keenly aware of how much Jesus spoke about the kingdom. Do you suppose that when Jesus informed his disciples that some among them would not taste death before seeing Jesus in his kingdom, that he was referring to the transfiguration? I think that's... Probably the best explanation because in all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where, it's, where it, that's, this story is recorded, he says, I tell you that some of you will not see death until you have first seen the kingdom of God. And then about six days later, he takes them up onto the mountain. That's the next uh, event in the order in all three of the synoptics. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus took Peter, John, and James, James up to the mountain. These three disciples, you probably know, were the inner circle. They were, the, they were known as the, the, the inner three. 
And they were with Jesus on special occasions. And the, and the two most important were here on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then when Jesus took them with him to, to into the Garden of Gethsemane. And Matthew uses essentially the same language. A little different in the tense there. Uh, in taking them. But it's the same language. And that's important in Matthew. There are all kinds of connections in Matthew. In the early days, Jesus began preaching a, a, a ministry or preaching a sermon of repentance. And then in, in Matthew 16, where we read last week, Jesus began telling them he was going to go. These mark turning points in the gospel. When Jesus took them up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and then he took them into the Garden of Gethsemane, you're supposed to be saying, oh, okay, seen this before. There's a connection here. <clears throat> the reason that this is important is because of the conversation that Jesus had with Moses and Elijah. Somehow, the disciples knew that Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah. I'm not exactly sure how he knew it. I wonder if there were introduction, uh, introductions. Moses, Elijah, Peter, James. I, you know, that's the way my mind works. I don't mean to be sacrilegious, like I say, especially if you think, as I was saying a few weeks ago, that Jesus, behold a fig tree, a parable. Then you wouldn't even think like that. But somehow they knew it was Moses and Elijah. Just imagine this scene, as they were talking, Jesus' face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light, or dazzling white, as Luke says. He was transfigured. It was as if he glowed from the inside out. The Greek word metamorpho is the same word used in Romans 12, too, where we are told... Not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's crazy. What were Jesus, Moses, and Elijah discussing? Matthew doesn't tell us, but Luke does. In verse chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So the conversation was about Jesus going to Jerusalem and what he would accomplish. It was referring to his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And even though Peter wanted no talk about the Messiah being put to death, it was the primary topic of conversation for Jesus and these two Old Testament saints. Then Peter spoke. <laughs> oh, Peter, as much as I like Peter and seek to cover for Peter, I'm constantly saying, don't, don't think of him this way. But, and as much as God used him both before and after Pentecost, there is no denying that he had the unfortunate tendency to speak before fully addressing the situation. Now point to somebody you know that... No, don't do that. Don't do that. I'd be pointing right here as well. <laughs> I'd be pointing. So here's what Peter said. Lord, 
Lord, Jesus, this is really cool. We can make a shelter for each one of you, all three of you. you look, I can't, this blows my mind. You are as important as Moses and Elijah. That's probably what Peter was saying. Think about it. He, he didn't know any better. Still, he should have remained silent. Peter gained insight quickly, though. A voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. <laughs> Are you aware of another place in Scripture where the father said about the son, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. At his baptism. So at Jesus' baptism, he was identifying with sinners who were baptized. It's a beautiful thought. And now at the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus and Moses and Elijah talked about the crucifixion, the time where Jesus would take our sins upon himself and God's wrath would be poured out on sinners to the point that Jesus would say, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was receiving God's wrath for our sin. All of these, in all of these ways, Jesus is identifying with us. And in Romans 6, it says that those who believe, it's as if we died with Jesus on the cross. This is the way God sees it. And as if we rose with him from the dead. Which is why we can say with confidence when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And he is pleased. So somebody needs to hear that. Somebody has really been struggling with a sin this week that you hate with everything in you. Kind of like Paul hated the sins in Romans 7 that he was struggling with. And you say, no, I can't go to the Lord and ask forgiveness. I've done, I've asked it six times already this week, seven. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus and he's pleased. Now, he will deal with you according to your sins. He, he disciplines, but he does so in love. This was Jesus identifying with us. When God the Father instructed the disciples to listen to his beloved son, they fell on their faces, terrified at the voice and the implications of what was said. Well, probably they were terrified with the voice. And even if they didn't get the entire message, they were in the direction, they were on their way. Even if you don't understand all the implications of what we are seeing in Scripture today, a picture may be forming in your mind maybe that you can't even get get around it exactly but hopefully it will make sense at the end of next week's sermon or 40 years from now which whichever <clears throat> perhaps the only thing worse than admitting that you don't fully understand is that you like Peter get it all if our nation had existed in the first century, people would have said, I, look, that guy is an American Jew. I know it. He knows everything. <laughs> we do understand a great deal, though, and partly 
because of Peter's impulsiveness, which led Jesus to explain where Peter had gotten it wrong. Except that this time it was God the Father speaking to Peter, telling him that he must listen to Jesus, who is unlike any others. The whole book of Hebrews, Jesus is better, 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 all the way through. Was the Father telling Peter that Jesus was more important than Moses who had given the nation of Israel the terms of Yahweh's covenant with them and that Jesus was more important than Elijah who was to come ahead of the Messiah and had come in John the Baptist as Jesus will tell his disciples as they go down the mountain or was the Father telling the disciples to listen to Jesus when he spoke of his death? It's not complicated. Again, yes, it's simply yes. Three things. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is more important than any other in God's kingdom. Jesus' death and resurrection form the centerpiece from which God's kingdom breaks into the world. And that's where we're going in this Series on missions, God's kingdom is breaking in, light breaking in to the darkness. And his light comes into the already not yet kingdom. So again, I'm not going to take time to read the rest of the text, but the full text will be read and discussed at home group this week if your group is meeting. For now... Just know that as Jesus and his disciples descended the mountain, they were talking about Elijah. Doesn't Elijah have to come? Elijah has already come, and they've done with him what they will. John the Baptist was Elijah, preparing the way of the Lord. At the bottom of the mountain, a man met Jesus and complained that the disciples had not been able to cast out a demon from his son, reminding them that although they had received a taste of the future kingdom up on the mountain, now at the bottom of the mountain, they realize that the kingdom is not fully here. Truly, the man whose son had a demon was not so much a complainer as he was just desperate. When Jesus... um, heard this, he rebuked the disciples for their lack of faith. And and, and then Jesus cast out the demon of the boy, again reminding them that the king kingdom had already arrived with Jesus, but it had not yet, and nor has it yet to this day fully come. Look, Jesus' confrontation with the demons in particular, how did they respond? They were terrified whenever... They met Jesus and nobody else was able to deal with them. But when Jesus addressed them, they came out. His kingdom had begun. After this miracle, Jesus again, verses 22 and 23, began to speak to his disciples about his impending arrest, mistreatment, execution and resurrection. He had not yet told them how he would die, but he had told them that he would die. And it distressed the disciples 
greatly. So much so that almost every time they would immediately start talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They just didn't get it. They didn't get it. So I imagine now the kingdom of God is as clear as mud to you and at the moment, that is. Are, are we in the kingdom? Is the kingdom delayed? Will Jesus reign on the earth for a thousand years before the final battle? <laughs> Perhaps there is a series on Daniel and Revelation in our future. But for now, let's think about the kingdom of God with Jesus as its ruler. And about the dual nature of the kingdom. It is already not yet. Both John the Baptist and Jesus began their ministries by preaching that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Therefore, men need to repent. Men, women, children need to repent. After years of hearing Jesus preach about the kingdom, we read in Luke 17 verses 20 to 21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. If you've got a King James Version, it says the kingdom of God is within you. Probably not the best translation. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you or among you. So the Pharisees were saying, is it inter interesting how much I know about what Peter was saying and how much the Pharisees, we can read into this, it's pretty simple. The Pharisees were saying, hey Jesus, uh, we just got to tell you, you're not the kind of Messiah we were expecting. We're pretty good students of the prophecies about the Messiah and you just don't fit. But, but let's just... Let's just say, if you are the Messiah, when is your kingdom going to come? Jesus, as he so often did, informed them of their misunderstanding. Though they were looking for an Isaiah 9-6 Messiah who would carry the government upon his shoulders and usher in an age of peace and prosperity for the people of God, they had missed the very Son of God who was standing right in front of them. I know some of you think, I have a friend. I have a relative. How can they not see? Of all people who should have seen, these Pharisees missed it. Jesus was right in front of them. And they didn't get it. It's not that the Pharisees were mistaken in assuming that the Messiah would rescue the covenant people of God from oppressive political rule by defeating their enemies through war. It's just that they didn't understand that the Messiah would first come as a sacrificial lamb, dying for the sins of the people, and that he would bring Gentiles from every part of the globe into the covenant family. Although there weren't globes in every home in the first century, I will say. There was more than enough evidence, though, to point them to Jesus' divinity. 
Time and time again, he did signs that they heard about, that they saw miracles that the gospel writer, especially John, calls signs. And they kept saying, give us a sign, a sign on demand. See, they were doing on demand before we were. Let's see it. Come on. That's what Herod did. He's like, hey, do a miracle, just anything. And I'll let you go. Come on. They mocked him. And despite the evidence, they rejected him. They simply did not want to entertain the possibility that Jesus might be who he said he was. Because not only would they have been embarrassed with such a shoddy Messiah, but they would have had to give up their power and authority. And especially when you're in power, who wants to go with the theology of the cross instead of a theology of glory? At Christmas, we speak of two advents, or the two times Jesus appears on the earth. The first was when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and later ministered, crucified, was resurrected in Jerusalem. The second advent will be when Jesus returns for his people, these two advents coincide with the two aspects of the kingdom. Already, not yet. Jesus has already come. The kingdom is already here, but not yet fully as it will be when he comes in glory. One thing we know for certain. The kingdom of God is not here in its fullness. It is, though, already here in partial form. A short definition of both aspects of the kingdom would be helpful. First, the kingdom that is already here was inaugurated by Jesus. Heaven broke into this world's darkness when Jesus came. And again, the demons recognized it when they were forced to interact with him. Although it was not that the kingdom, it was not the kingdom that the religious leaders expected, the king sacrificed his life for all who will believe in him, bringing light into darkness and redeeming hopelessly lost people, giving them peace with God and giving them the privilege of experiencing the peace of God. Jesus' death and resurrection solidified his rule over the hearts of men and women. How were we to express our allegiance to this king in the already not yet kingdom? That's for next week. Matthew 25, 31 says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The rest of the chapter goes on to speak of the judgment. He'll divide the peoples into the sheep and the goats. And some will be forever eternally damned. And some will go into eternal life. His perfect rule will begin. And our suffering. All kinds of suffering will be forever behind us. The moment Jesus returns to the earth, including 
that sin that you've struggled with this week. It'll be done. We'll be done with that. And that's when the kingdom is here in its fullness. The choice that we must make as citizens of the kingdom is whether we will live for the individual and temporary kingdoms that are available to all of us in this life, especially in a place where there is a good amount of freedom. If you think, oh, not anymore. So Let's hope you don't find out. Let's hope none of us do. But there's a lot available to us. We can go just about any direction we go, want to go. So we're going to go there. Or are we going to live up to the name that we bear? Christian. As citizens of the kingdom. Seeking to do his will now. And seeking to let others know about this kingdom of God that already exists on this earth. Even in the face of opposition. Well, especially in the face of opposition. It's a little clearer now than it used to be. Such a posture allows us to joyfully anticipate the fulfillment of Jesus' kingdom when he returns. It also motivates us to take this good news of the kingdom to all who need to hear, which is pretty much everybody everywhere. The text for next week's sermon is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I had prepared three points of application for today's message, but never got there trying to think about the kingdom. They'll have to wait until next week, but I do want to give you this list so you can anticipate this for next week's sermon. First, we receive the kingdom of God. We do not build it. What are you trying to change in this world? Are your efforts political or spiritual in nature? We don't, we don't build the kingdom of God. He built it. We receive it. That's in Hebrews 12, 28, I believe it is. Started to read it, but that text is so complex. Oh, man. It just it would t- take too long. Second, our message and our task are urgent. And this is lighting a fire under my soul. I get too complacent. I, most of, I don't interact with lost people as much as most of you do. I Every opportunity I get, even against my will, I find myself witnessing, but I need to be much more intentional about being in those places. Our message and our task are urgent. Therefore, as we go, it's kind of the message of the Great Commission, as you were going, we can rest. In God's sovereign rule over world events and personal circumstances. And that's pretty awesome. And that breaks every rule possible for good writing and speaking. But I don't care. It's pretty awesome. (laughs) Life in Jesus' unshakable kingdom, again Hebrews 12, is radically different from the status quo in worldly kingdoms. If this were a series about the kingdom rather than about missions, we would go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 to to see how we are to live according to values of 
that kingdom of Jesus' kingdom, of God's kingdom, that are completely upside down from the world's values in its own kingdom. Be humble. Forgive your enemies. Watch your thought life. Do your good works in secret, which is why I struggle with saying, okay, I'm doing this and I learned 40 years. Do your good works in secret. Wait a minute, I just got to tell people that I just did that, you know, that I said that. I, what it, what it, really, folks, what is wrong with us? What is it? I'm not saying Facebook. Twitter, I'm not saying it's wrong, but it, I'll tell you, there's this much good and this much bad, and you are perilously close to living according to this world's values when you're there. You can use it, yes, but more than likely, it's going to use you at some point. So you've got to be careful. Be humble. Forgive your enemies. Watch your thought life. Do your good works. In secret. Build your house on the unchangeable rock. And not on the shifting sands of earthly empires. That's kingdom life. Led by the one who left the glories of heaven. To dwell among us. And bring eternal life. To those who will acknowledge their sins before the Lord. Oh God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I repent. I believe that Jesus died for me. For those who will say that simple prayer that costs you nothing more than your entire life. They become children of God. That's the good news we share. Let's pray. Father, even as I flip back to the front of this sermon and I think about the church in New Zealand, I cannot say with arrogance, I got the truth, you don't, because it's a gift from you. We are indeed to stand for truth and be offended when error, especially in the name of Jesus, is proclaimed. But may we always remember that we receive this beautiful truth from you. It's not of ourselves. That we are children of God. Oh, Jesus. What a privilege to be part of your kingdom. We pray this day that you would make us humble, able, Willing, even, well, willing even if we're not excited about forgiving our enemies. May our thoughts be given to you. May our full hearts be surrendered to the will of the King. We serve at your pleasure. And we give thanks for your goodness revealed to us in so very many ways. And it's in Jesus' name, all that it represents that we give thanks.
and yield ourselves afresh to you. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.